You might be aware that some GPs own their own premises and effectively rent this back to the NHS and receive rent for doing so. And this can be a good arrangement, but is fraught with pitfalls. So on today's podcast, we are going to be talking about GP premises and we're going to talk about what is notional rent and how do you get paid it? What is the valuation of a GP surgery and how is that calculated? We're talking about sale and lease backs where a private company might take over your surgery and lease it back to you. We're talking about building new surgeries and extending existing surgeries and the abatements around there. So clearly something more aimed at GPs today, but I'm sure listeners of this podcast would agree that all doctors could benefit from some financial education and no more so is this true than for GP partners because not only are GP partners clinicians, they're also running a small business and if the small business fails, then the practice fails and the patients will not have a GP. And it's really rare to get taught anything about this when you're training as a GP. And that is exactly why we started our GP partnership course. This course is online, live, and you can watch replays in your own time because we know how busy you are. And we also have a thriving online community of over 300 GP partners and other partners, so practice manager partners, pharmacist partners, mixed in with all of the best experts in the business where you can ask questions anytime. And we also recently had a live face-to-face -face event in London. The course can be funded by the new to partnership payment or PCN payments and some partners have also funded it themselves. And the next course starts on the 28th of February. So if you're interested in coming, head to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course where you can find out all the information that you need. Right, let's get into today's podcast. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr Ed Cantelow, a GP but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Thompson, who is a primary care surveyor. Hi, Adam. Good morning, Tommy. Nice to see you. Yeah, and you, although I can't see you because we're having various <laughs> internet issues today, but let's not get hung up on the details. But what is a primary care surveyor and how do you become one? Quirky little sector, Tommy. A bit of a one-trick pony. So I am a chartered surveyor and I started my career in the district valuers. And probably many of you and your audience have heard of the district valuer and probably make further reference to the district valuer during this podcast. But yes, district valuer covers many roles, but one role pertinent for this is they tend to advise the health authorities as well. And it's a quirky little sector that I quite enjoy doing. So it starts off by the district valuer advising the health authorities, PCTs, CCGs, latterly the ICBs on rents, value for money. So that's how I started off my career. Then I moved from the district valuers into private sector, worked for a couple of private sector firms and set up my business 13 years ago, specializing in primary care real estate. Nice. And we're pretty glad that you did because you teach on our GP partnership course. And most of what we say today is basically going to be relevant to GPs, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And 80, 90% of our clients are GPs. We also act for some of the landlords who own doctor's surgeries, also act for pharmacists, dentists, local authorities, and some NHS bodies from time to time. But yeah, our day-to-day contact, either we're acting for doctors or on the opposite landlords or doctors, but day-to-day contact is very much with doctors. Yeah, and not many people might be aware that some GPs can actually own their own GP practice themselves or the partnership owns it. And then effectively, they can rent that or get rent from NHS for occupying those premises. And it can work out quite well. And that's something called notional rent or sometimes called reimbursed rent or cost rent. So can you just explain Are those three the same thing? And what are they in broad, simple terms? They're all different. And we're all guilty, me included, of sometimes uses those rent phrases interchangeably, but they are different. So as you started off then, Tommy, the bedrock of NHS property or primary care property, importantly, is that the properties, most surgeries, and going back to 1948 was very much the case, properties are owned privately by the partners. And of course, as we all know, GP practices are a private business with an NHS contract. So most practices, and it's still by far the prominent proportion, the majority of surgeries are owned as private assets by the GP partnership. And because they're owned by the practice and the property is being used for NHS healthcare, the NHS pays rent and that's notional rent. And that's probably about two thirds, if not more, a bit more than that, of GP surgeries are still owned as partnership assets and get notional rent. The other rent you mentioned is reimbursed rent. And that applies to premises that are not owned by the partnership, they're owned by a third party, so they're leased. So the premises that are leased and there's rent being paid to the landlord, the NHS will reimburse that lease rent. So that's the distinction between reimbursed rent and notional rent. And the third type of rent you mentioned then was cost rent, which still exists sometimes. Very rare, quite well, relatively rare nowadays. So cost rent gets used as a phrase and is seldom still applicable because cost rent only applies when there's a mortgage and until such time as the notional rent overtakes the cost rent. So either the mortgages have now expired or the notional rent has overtaken the cost rent and the practice has switched from cost rent to notional rent. So cost rent, yeah, if someone does say they're on cost rent, we normally have to delve a bit just to check if they really are on cost rent or it's just been used as a historic phrase. Yeah, okay. You said this was niche and you weren't joking, (laughs) but I think that's a really good thing to make clear at the outset and uh, terminology is really important. Mm. Now, one of the things that we see on our partnership course and a lot of people are really surprised about and don't do is challenging notional rent. And this is really important to do, isn't it? It is. And of course, I'm bound to say that because we have for practices doing that, but it is worthwhile doing. If I need to make sure that it's up to date, and that any inaccuracies are identified. So it's really prudent to do so. I know sometimes it's very easy not to do it because the system is slow and that slowness can be seen as a deterrent. And I appreciate some practice go, I can't be bothered or the NHS haven't started the rent review yet. You don't actually need to wait for the NHS to start the process. The process starts by the practice filling in a form. And we have that form. I'm sure other firms have the form. 
And so we give the form to the practices, ask them to send that in, it's a spreadsheet form. And then that form gets submitted to the ICB and that starts the process. But it does take time. It does take time yeah. to, to work its way through the system. And the rent reviews happen every three years. So it is a bit like the proverbial fourth bridge. No sooner do you finish one rent review that the next one's due or may already be overdue. So it is a bit of a, it's a frustrating process, but it is worthwhile to be part of and to keep churning. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, you've got to be proactive about it. And every three years, you basically need to have it on your radar. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so okay. for our clients, we make sure that they're aware of the interview coming up. We hold their form for them, send them the form again, update the form and get that form resubmitted to keep that churn, keep it ticking along. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned that you could do it yourself as well. So why would somebody, you know, do it with you, if that makes sense? Actually, the form, I always give the practice to fill in because the form to start the process is practice information. It's your J codes, it's the partner's names. There's also, you have to list the rooms and how the rooms are used. That's why the form, the first time you complete it, it takes a bit of time. If you keep the form from this time round, and when you get to next time round, you just need to update it, refresh it. So it's just the first time it takes time to fill it in. So that side of things, better off with the practice, but I'll happy have a look over it. Once that form's been submitted, then we get through the, a torturous process, which I won't bore you with, but ultimately you will then receive a letter from the ICB, which sets out the district valuers valuation, which is great because that gives me and other surveyors, the detail of how the district valuer has gone about it. So it gets a floor area and the value, the rate per square meter, that is, that the district valuer has applied to the accommodation. So we can check it. We can check, actually, how does that floor area compare to what we think the floor area is? How does the value compare to what we think the value should be? So that's when the valuers get involved. So look at floor areas, look at the values, look at the comparison between this surgery and another surgery. So it's a comparable method that we use. And that's where we have the knowledge to go through and compare one surgery to another surgery. Should the rent be higher? Hopefully it will be higher. And we can negotiate that and to hopefully get to a negotiated agreement with the district valuer. If we don't, then we're into a form of dispute process, which is happening more and more. <laughs> okay, cool. So that's really helpful. And I think that's really obvious. So basically the practice could fill the form in, but you bring your expertise to make sure that A, everything's done properly, B, that the rent review is fair and just general expertise in this area, which can help really busy GP partners like myself. Okay, so we've talked about owned premises, having a rent review. What about if, because lots of GPs are in leased premises. So what happens when they have a rent review? There's a really fascinating distinction there, or fascinating to me, because it's completely different. Take a step back. So we're talking about owned premises. So when it's the owned premises, it's the NHS system that takes priority. By way of the NHS premises directions, that will dictate what happens with notional rent and how that is conducted. When the premises are leased, it's the lease that takes precedent. It's the lease that says what happens. And the NHS premises directions, or that part of it relating to lease premises, says that everything that is to follow the events of the lease. So if the lease allows for a rent review, if the landlord hasn't done anything about the rent review, typically it's the landlord, but if nothing's happened to change the rent payable under the lease, then the NHS 
have no position to look at the reimbursed rent because nothing's changed under the lease. So it is the lease that takes precedence in lease premises. And under the current NHS premises directions, it goes a bit further than that. It actually says that when it comes to a rent review, the landlord and tenant are to agree the rent in the first instance, agree it and document it. And then it is for the tenant, the GP practice as the contractor, to apply to the ICB for an increase in the reimbursed rent. So that's a funny one, that, because it, that puts the practice at risk. Because it could, if the practice has already agreed the lease rent at a higher level of rent, and then it goes to the ICB, who in turn go to the district valuer, to then consider what the reimbursed rent is, they might come back with a lower reimbursed rent than what the practice has just agreed as the lease rent. So we have to be very watchful of that risk to make sure that the, our clients aren't exposed to that risk. And there are ways and means that we can protect them. Yeah. And we talk about that in detail on our partnership course. And it's always gets a lot of attention because, yeah, I think those in lease premises, that is a bit of a vulnerability for them if they don't get the right advice yeah. and do it right. Absolutely. So something else that's unfortunately happening quite a lot recently in GP land, I'm sure for you, is... Partners are retiring and then when a partner retires and they own the part of the building, you need to get your surgery valued. So what does that process look like? We start off by looking at the partnership agreement, assuming there is a partnership agreement, because the partnership agreement should have a valuation clause in there. So me as a valuer would come along, look at the valuation clause, and it should give some direction as to how I am a to approach that valuation. Quite typically, it says that we are to consider the property for surgery use to have regard to the notional rent and the likelihood of that notional rent continuing. So that means we are valuing the property as a surgery in the main. So we look at the notional rent, we look at when the notional rent was last reviewed. And as I say, there's always an outstanding rent review or a rent review shortly to happen. So we're always having to take a view about what the rent will be either as well as what the rent currently is we also look at any other income streams relating to the property so if part of it is let to a pharmacy or community trust what other rental incomes do we have and then we apply multipliers which are a version of yield to arrive at a value and what we've often seen tommy is in recent years okay we changed in recent months but because interest rates have been so low in recent years that means those investment yields are low and it might seem a bit odd but the lower the yield the higher the value so as interest rates start to rise it does mean that in some instances the values may fall we haven't really seen that yet but certainly values in recent years have been high and that's often been quite nice for the partners who are leaving or retiring. They're quite happy to see a high valuation being reported. Sometimes though, it does cause issue for the incoming partners because it may well be that the value was higher than what they were expecting. And that can sometimes lead to conversations about, ooh, I wasn't quite expecting that. 
is an alternative to buying in or how many partners are buying in? Can we spread the load a bit wider? Yeah. And so, you know, when that happens, the person retiring, because just to explain, when the person retires, they are basically going to get their share of the building owned back out of the building at the value that is determined at that time or whatever it says in your partnership agreement. So if the values, you know, pleases the retiring partner, but scares off the prospective partner who might be looking to join, what solutions actually are there because i've heard of some surgeries not doing the buy-in value on the notional rent value but the open market value would you say or if you used it as something other than a gp surgery right there's quite a few issues from that one so (laughs) thanks so right we've got two points there so let's go back to the valuation point or take the reverse order so reverse order are we looking at it as a surgery or as you say open market open market is a broad definition we use as charter surveyors, but it's whether it's open market as a surgery or is it open market or market value as something else. And we have to be very watchful of this one because as I said earlier, a good partnership agreement will direct the valuer to have regard to the notional rent and the likelihood of it continuing. And it's a really sort of fundamental point that because it, it makes the valuer or should make the valuer question is this a good property to continue to be used for the provision of primary healthcare services or not? Is it coming towards the end of its life? So if it is a good quality asset, and we're very confident it will continue to be used as a surgery for many more years, then we're absolutely fine to continue the valuation, assuming it to be a surgery. But if it is a, a small surgery, a house conversion surgery, a small patient list, and we think it is coming towards the end of its life, then we could be erroneous to value it on the assumption it's a surgery forevermore. So sometimes we do have to look at it as something else or sometimes a hybrid to say, look, we think it's going to be a surgery for the next five years, but actually five years will have maxed out its life as a surgery and will then become or go back to being a house or split into flats or something. So sometimes we do have to look at the valuations depending on the circumstances, so take the right approach. And sometimes we've had to go back to a partnership and say, your partnership agreement is telling us to do this, i.e. value it as a surgery forevermore, but actually we don't think that's going to give you the right answer because we don't think it is going to be a surgery forevermore and we actually need to start thinking about what it might be when it's not a surgery. And we've had quite a few, got a couple of instances we're dealing with at the moment where valuers haven't been wrong, They've done the valuation as per the partnership agreement, but actually we're in the process. I'm being brought in to advise the practice to move somewhere else to a new medical centre. Yet to move out, the existing surgery has been valued at a million pounds, whatever the figure might be. But when it's no longer a surgery, it's not worth a million pounds. It's worth half a million pounds. So some and so the practice has got negative equity. So as I say, you have to be engaging in the valuation process to make sure that the valuers take the right approach to get to the right outcome. So it's a long answer to your second point, Tommy. I haven't answered your first point yet, which was about the valuation is higher than the incoming partner thought. So sometimes then it's, what does the partnership want to do? Because the partnership could go down the route of having partners who don't buy in. So you have property-owning partners and non-property-owning partners. So that's, sometimes that's the outcome. The alternative is that Maybe it's no longer right for the practice to carry on owning property. So to carry on occupying the property, as they have done, but to sell off the ownership, sell the property off to someone else, and the practice take a lease. 
So that could be a sell and lease back, which is a phrase that's often trotted around. And I appreciate there are some firms out there sending brochures and letters to practices asking them about sell and lease backs. I don't know whether you've received one, one of those letters, Tommy. Yep, we have. So let's get into that because it's happening more and more, like you say. What is the sale and lease back? How does it work? And what's the pros and cons? But importantly, let's start off with the basics. As with your surgery, Tommy, you and your partners own your surgery. So you're the owners and you're the occupiers. And that, as I say, that's when notional rent applies. So if you do a sell and lease back, we're separating the ownership from the occupation continues as per under a lease agreement, but we're selling the ownership away. So it can be very attractive to do and can be the right thing to do in some instances, but owning a property, you own an asset. And as we've just touched on a couple of times already in this podcast is that when you own the property, you get notional rent and your notional rent should hopefully more than cover your mortgage. So owning the asset is you're actually being, having your mortgage paid for by the NHS. So owning the asset can be very good. Conversely, if you take a lease, you're sold the asset to someone else, you're taking the lease, and a lease is a liability. A lease is a responsibility to pay rent to your landlord for the next 10, 15, 20 years, wherever it may be, and to repair the property and whatever else. So you are swapping an asset for a liability. As long as you're aware of that and you're aware of the detail that goes with that, then fine. But uh, I always, when clients talk to me about selling these packs, I like to be very clear about why they're doing it, what they're trying to achieve, and is it the right outcome? Sometimes it isn't. But, and the other part of that is when you do a sell and lease back, the lease, and this is a very important point, it has to be approved by the NHS because you're switching from notional rent when you own the property to reimburse rent when you lease the property. So you're switching from one system to the other system. But that entry into that lease does need approval from the commissioner. And it does say in the premises directions that if you don't have that prior approval, the commissioner must not then pay you reimbursed rent. I've never seen it happen. I've never seen a practice actually fall foul of that, but it is in the directions that it's a must not. So, but it is very important to get that approval if we're doing a sell and lease back. Yeah, I think, you know, the brochures are shiny, the numbers look lovely, but I think, yeah, not advice obviously, but your point is a really good one. You are swapping an asset for liabilities. So I'm not a fan of doing that in general, but that's not advice. Do your own research, take advice from someone like Adam. So, okay, this is another massive question. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm getting big questions here, but I think it's good to know. I need a new medical center. How can you get me one? It's slow, it's torturous, it's challenging, and it's a very big question. Right, as with everything in the NHS, you need NHS approval because they're going to pay for it ultimately through rent, either through them paying you a notional rent or reimbursed rent, but the rents on new premises is high. New medical centres are big. They're big and they have big rent numbers that go with them. So they are quite costly to the NHS. So we need to justify to why we need it. What is the benefit to the health economy, to the health system, by that new medical centre being built? And that justification is through a business case. So whether practice are doing the development themselves or using a third-party developer, doesn't matter it still needs the same justification. And so that's a business case approval process, which takes time and is very involved, understandably so. And there's three stages to that approval process. And 
writing those detailed business cases, practices sometimes do them themselves and they take a lot of time. If you use a developer, the developer will tend to prepare the business case and will sometimes use consultants to do so, but they're quite expensive because they take quite a lot of time. But if you use a developer, they will pay for it. But the other challenge is finding the site because in the property market, the land values that we can pay for a medical center to be built tend not to be very high compared to what other property developers may pay. So it's very hard for us to build a medical center, to go in the market and compete for land when that land may be going for housing or for industrial use, whatever. Those land values relating to those other uses are often much higher. So we can't bid high in value or high enough in value and we bid slow because we're not going to buy the land until we've got that NHS approval, that business case being approved. So we're low payers and we're slow. So we're not very good at being able to secure land in the marketplace. So that's a big deterrent. So what we're increasingly having to do is work with the planning system to try and get land allocated in planning applications for a medical center to be built. So if there's a big housing estate going to be built, how is that population going to be served? Does that developer need to provide land or a medical center as part of their alpha planning process? And that's increasingly happening either through the NHS, and the NHS are getting better at this. NHS are getting much better at engaging with the local planning authorities to say, look, we've got increasing population, we've got increasing need. Planners, can you please help us at the NHS to get the land, the facilities, the resources to actually put healthcare infrastructure in place. Yeah, that's really great. And I don't really want to go down the section 106 money rabbit hole (laughs) today because we've been down that rabbit hole in the course. And I know you're supporting several GPs from our course to do this right now. But do we want to say two sentences on section 106 or not? When you actually go through it, it's often not that much money when it comes down to it in the scheme. But of course, all money helps. But there is section 106 money. There's also another one called SIL. CIL, which is Community Infrastructure Levy. So there is money available, but that money technically belongs in the public sector. So it's money that goes from the developer to the local planning authority. And some of the local planning authorities are very sensitive about where that money then goes. Because as I said at the outset, GPs are a private business, your private sector. And so some planning authorities are not happy to give that Section 106 money across to a GP practice, but they want to keep that money within the public sector. So we'll give that money across to the relevant NHS body, which can now be the ICB. So that money can go across. We get into this NHS issue because, as we've touched on or mentioned repeatedly, the payment of rent or the funding of premises in the NHS is revenue funding, whereas this money coming across as Section 106 money is capital money, seal money or whatever. So that sometimes gets a bit of a blurring of the lines for the ICB as to capital coming in, but it's revenue funding that's important. So how that then works is we tend to treat it very similar to an improvement grant. So that has, in the premises directions, which I've referred to previously, there is a formula in there about how improvement grant money can be used to discount the increased rent cost of new premises. Have I answered you there, Tommy, in a roundabout way? You definitely have. I think it's just something that gets asked a lot on our course, and I think it's just important to raise the points that you did. And something else you mentioned there, which I just want to touch on as well, is 
the improvement grants. So let's say I've been offered an improvement grant, but is my rent then going to be discounted as a result? Is that right? And how does that all work? It's right and wrong. Right. So your core rent doesn't get discounted. It's only the additional rent. So it's the enhanced rent that comes about, that extra rental value that comes around because of the improvement that's been made. So the NHS aren't going to pay twice. If they've paid for the improvement by way of an improvement grant, they're not going to pay for the improvement twice by paying the full rent on it as well. So it makes absolute sense from a taxpayer's point of view that if the NHS have paid for a property to be extended, let's give a simple example. If a surgery has been extended and that extension has been funded by an improvement grant, and the way the funding tends to work is that the NHS funding will cover two thirds of the cost with the practice paying one third. So in which case, when it comes to the extra rent, you get a third you've put a third of the cost in and the NHS has a two-thirds benefit abatement is the phrase they use so the additional rent is abated by two-thirds for there's a sliding scale but let's say 10 years and then after 10 years the practice will then get the full rent for that extension so it's actually quite a it's quite a sensible system yeah, definitely. I think that's really important. Again, distinction that you made there that your normal rent doesn't get changed, but you have abated rent on the floor area that the is in the extension because the NHS has effectively paid two thirds yeah. of that. So it's only kind of fair that the abatement is. And then you've got to keep an eye on this because when the abatement ends, getting rid of it or getting the extra money is, well, it was very difficult for us in my experience. I don't know what your experience of it is. Thank you for mentioning that, Tommy. A lot of practices, because it's, I suppose we're all guilty of this sometimes, when you're doing something in the moment, you know all the data, you know all the dates, you know it happened last week, last month, whatever. When you look back three years' time, five years' time, you haven't got that data. You haven't got that information. So it's very important to keep a note, keep records of the dates, when was the extension built, how long is the abatement agreed for, when is the abatement due to expire, and all the details to do with the how much money did the practice put into the project. So your third, how much was your third? If the CCG, ICB have paid two thirds, okay, let's actually put down how much money was that. So we've got the total cost, how much of that total cost was paid by the practice, how much was paid by the ICB, what was your notional rent before that extension was built, what would have been your notional rent once the extension was built, if it wasn't for the abatement? And then we can do all the abatement calculations quite accurately and quite easily. It's when you haven't got the perfect knowledge. And of course, as I say, you know, it's very easy at the time to be clear, two years on, three years on, whatever, sounds of time and that gets lost in the memory a bit. So to record it clearly is really beneficial. I've seen one ICB or CCG as it was at the time who actually wrote a really helpful contract, I suppose, for the practice detailing exactly how it worked. And that record keeping is invaluable because also it takes us back to where we were talking earlier, Tommy, about valuations. We get called in to do a valuation of a property and then you get told, oh, yes, well, we had an extension built and it had an improvement grant. Then we come in cold and say, well, OK, how much was the improvement grant? How much was the extension? And we're scratching round trying to get that information the practice wants an accurate valuation from us but we haven't got accurate information from the practice so it's yeah as ever the case record keeping details all help
Definitely, especially if it's a long period of abatement and they're having changes in partnership and roles and everything. So it's boring, but keeping hold of the paperwork is sound financial advice in many yeah. domains. Adam, that was such a great, you know, run through on, you know, all the key topics there. And, you know, it's really good to have your expertise because as GPs, we don't really get taught anything about this, which is pretty shocking, really, because it's a massive part of running our businesses, which of course is GP practices and running a successful GP practice is as much about running the business as running the clinical side of things. And you can't have one without the other. So it was great to have your expertise. Obviously, all those on our partnership course are getting your expertise directly there. But for those that aren't, where can people contact you and what kind of area do you cover, etc.? Yeah, well, our website is very simple. It is primarycaresurveyors.com. In terms of coverage, we're based on the South Coast, but we've got clients throughout the South. We've got Midlands, we've got some work on in St. Helens at the moment. So glad to advise wherever within reason so always happy to have a conversation about can we advise if we don't think we're a very small team if we don't think we can advise you if you don't think we are the best place to advise you we will tell you we know other surveyors so if appropriate we can direct you to other surveyors who we think can advise you better if we don't think we can so always glad to have a conversation we do lots of work with the nhs property services tenants at the moment lots of stuff about the service charges and heads or turns for leases on that, particularly following on from the BMA court case that happened. So, and we've got clients on that side of things up and down the country. So very happy to to have a chat with any of your members. I think that's our next podcast about the rent services in service things, because that's an evolving area. I mean, that is niche, but we get a lot of questions about that. It's a big topic. It's a very big topic. And yeah, very glad to do that with you. So yeah, glad to discuss that further. Thanks so much for your time today. That was brilliant. And I think we should do that other topic as well. It's pretty niche, but it's very important. <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for your time. Take care.